Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Rob Spedding and today I am joined by Matthew Loveridge and Rob Weaver for a tech Q&A. Basically, you have sent in your questions, we're going to answer them. Uh, Matthew is representing the roadside, Robin is uh, representing mountain bikes, but they'll chip in, they're, they're experts on both sides, so, um, so I think we should get some, some, good, uh, some good answers today. Um, I am going to go straight in with a question. Uh, one of you put your hands up. Who hand up? Who wants it first? Matthew's raised his hand virtually. Um, so Matthew, this is a question about a giant bike, a giant road bike, and it is: How do you fix, maintain hybrid disc brakes on a giant contend SL disc? And this is a 2017 bike, if that's if that's important. But basically, how do you fix and maintain the hybrid disc brake system on a giant contend? So giant fitted the contend with what's called the conduct system which is basically it allows a hydraulic disc brake to be operated by a conventional mechanical lever it was basically a cost saving measure because at that price level giant didn't want to give you a full hydraulic system uh the fundamental system is very simple it's a small length of cable is operating a hydraulic master cylinder which then operates the brake and so the hydraulic side of it is kind of like any other hydraulic brake system it's mineral oil based, so similar to Shimano, but in fact, Giant used, well, they worked with Tektro when they made this system, and so all of the parts are Tektro standard. Now, you can 
go to Giant and buy an official kit from them, costs £60 to service it, but to be honest, I wouldn't do that because you can go and get a cheap aftermarket bleed kit. It'll cost you 15, 20, 25 quid, something thereabouts. Uh, that'll sort you out for bleeding, which you should probably do every year or two. Basically, if the brakes are feeling spongy, bleed them, but it's a good idea to change out the fluid intermittently anyway. Um, and apart from that, Make sure everything is kept clean. Keep track of pad wear. Uh, the brake pads are very, very cheap. You can buy the giant OEM ones. You might as well. They're about seven quid a pair. But again, it's like a super standard brake pad that you'll find in any good bike shop. Um, and yeah, just be kind to your bicycle. The main thing with particularly cheaper components is they really suffer when you get road salt on them. So if you're regularly washing your bike and checking the parts, it'll be much happier. Very good. Very good advice there, Matthew. I mean, changing discs, um, maintaining disc brakes is something that a lot of people, particularly people who are new to, to disc brakes, get the fear of. Is it, it's relatively simple, isn't it? It's relatively simple. It's not necessarily massively intuitive if you've never done it before, but there are detailed instructions available. You can go to Giant and get a specific manual for that system and also there are loads and loads of good YouTube tutorials on how to bleed brakes. Um, so it's good to watch a few so that you understand like why you're doing it and you're not just following like steps one, two, three. But basically it's to purge air from the system to make sure that your brakes are performing optimally. I have to admit it is something I have never done. So uh, Really? Maybe it's... some... No. <laughs> I, I've got a man. <laughs> I would spending any rides rim brakes. Oh, okay, I would just add though, well, if you if you search around and maybe don't necessarily stick to the, well, like Matthew said, looking sort of elsewhere on YouTube for hints and tips. There's normally extras you can find that maybe the manufacturers wouldn't include. Stuff like tapping the calipers to try and free up the air and and little hints, um, especially from pro mechanics and stuff like that. So it's worth taking the time to have a good look around on the internet to find um, the best way of doing it. Yeah. And, and, and it's obviously the same principle for mountain bikes, isn't it? So yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Although you don't get mountain bikes with strange hybrid brake systems like the conductor. No. That is very road, <laughs> isn't it? Very road. <laughs> um, very right. Road. We're going to move on to a mountain bike question now, uh, Rob. And this is one that I'm keen to get an answer to. Um, our, who, uh, the, the, the person that, that, that sent this in um, said, I keep hearing the mention of down country bikes on websites and in magazines. So I guess we're to blame a little bit here. Yeah. Basically, what on earth are they? So uh, a typical down country bike. Well, I mean, it's a... I guess it's an emerging category, and I think um, I think that the the term was was coined by Mike Levy on Pink Bike actually, um, and basically it's it sort of started as a lot of the engineers behind the you know traditional cross country bikes, the full suspension bikes especially, were taking those bikes and they were you know maybe adding a slightly stiffer fork or a slightly longer travel fork. Uh, and then maybe add in a dropper post, potentially changing the gearing as well slightly, maybe beefing up the brakes, so bigger rotors and stuff like that. So they could still, uh, you know, get the benefit of that lightweight frame, but it's made a little burlier so they can ride it a bit harder. Um, you're not, you know, um, 
left with a fixed seat post um, getting in the way on the descent. And oh yeah, and, an, and another thing they'll change generally is the tyres, so they're a bit tougher, just so you can push the bike a bit harder. So I'd say it's um, it's not a million miles off a, I guess a, a traditional full suspension cross country bike, um, but it's it's getting closer up that um, sliding scale towards what we know as a trail bike. Um, so it's still, it's going to be around, uh, I'd say probably the frame will have between hundred to 120 mil of travel. The fork might be 120 to 130 max, I'd say. And then, um, shorter stem, probably a wider bar, potentially a higher rise bar. Um, and like I said already, you know, a dropper post, more aggressive tires and, you know, in terms of geometry, those changes will have an effect. Some brands are essentially taking their current model and adding those bits, and and that's their sort of you know the way to do it. But other brands um, are going from the ground up, so designing a bike dedicated to this. So um, you know when they're adding a longer travel fork, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to just jack the bottom bracket up like it might if you just use the standard frame. So there's there's a few different ways. There's a few different brands um, approaching it in different ways, but you know you've got the likes of the Specialized Epic Evo, the Cannondale Scalpel SE. Um, a really interesting one is the NS Synonym TR, which is it's got some pretty radical numbers on in terms of reach, um, and then slacker head angles generally by around about a degree, maybe a little more than your traditional. XC bike but they're a hell of a lot of fun to ride you know it's one of those things where as long as the suspension's tuned properly and the, and the the bits are suitable you can ride a hell of a lot of stuff you know I've I've ridden some of them down black runs and bike parks and okay you know you're bottom them you're bottom them out quite a bit but they are seriously capable and a lot of fun mm. Matthew you, you you're from the road side of things I, I introduced you as a road expert but you do ride mountain bikes so do you have a view on down country uh, more of a question than a view, actually. I was going to ask Rob, would you say that down country bikes are sort of like cross country bikes with a sense of humour, like a more fun version of what we know as a cross country bike? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The Yeti guys describe them as their, you know, their lunch ride bikes. So bikes that they want to go out for a blast on. You know, if you, you might, I don't know, if you take a, a, a standard cross country bike with the skinny tyres, fixed seat posts you know, that more almost a road orientate position, it's, I guess it's designed to do a job, you know, rather than it being a lot of fun, it's designed to be as efficient as possible, light, you know, stiff, all of those things. So when you do go and ride those more challenging trails, it's probably not going to be quite as enjoyable. Whereas, yeah, these, these are more fun and should in theory be a bit more capable. Yeah. Good answer. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Are they like the gravel gravel bikes for mountain bikers, yeah? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, really we'll move on from there, shall we? We'll move on from that one. Um, here's another road question for you, Matthew. Um, someone who is relatively new to road riding, and they're going to be using um, an old bike. Uh, in this case, it's uh, a Boardman Road Sport. Um, they're going to commute to work on it. The bike fits them really well, but they're struggling with braking. Basically, finding that 
uh, as, as someone who's new to cycling, new to, to drop, drop bars, that uh, using the brakes on the drops is to them quite scary. And, you know, that is something that, that, that a lot of people mention. They have seen other bikes that feature extra brake levers. Um, and they're the ones that sit on the, the top of the bar. Are they easy to fit? Are they easy to find? Or is it just a case of getting used to using the drops? So I guess, first of all, I think about does the bike really fit you? Mm. Um, it's not essential that you brake from the drops in normal riding. In fact, most of the time, most people aren't on the drops. They'll be on the hoods and you should be able to brake effectively from the hoods though you will get slightly less leverage on the brake levers. And also, if you're doing, like, say, a fast descent, you're better off being in the drops because when you, if you do slam the brakes on, you get pushed into the handlebars. There's no danger of you, your weight kind of taking you over the bars in that situation. Um, so I would say if you can't comfortably brake, like if you can't reach the brake levers, I'm not sure if the bike does fit you. Rob, you want to jump so in? So all I was going to ask is, um, in mountain biking, obviously it's really common to just have um, a pretty straightforward method of changing the reach on the brake levers. So how far away from the handlebars they sit. Um, is it is it common to find that across most road brakes as well? It is. Um, the question was about an older road bike. I suspect that will most likely have lower spec Shimano levers of the kind where there was no adjustment per se, but you could get little shims, which any bike shop will probably have a big box of, that move the brake levers close to the bars. So if it's simply a case of not being able to reach the levers themselves, but you can reach the handlebars, that might be the solution. Or if you've got a newer bike with actual adjustment, it might be a case of winding that adjustment in to bring the levers closer. So that's where I'd look first. Uh, the levers that the question was about that are referred to as either like cross top levers or inline brake levers, um, they are quite often put on cyclocross bikes, or at least they used to be, and they they do work, um, but they're a bit of a sort of sticking plaster solution, I'd say, for a normal road bike, because you don't really want to be riding around all the time with your hands on the top of the bars because you have less control and you're not really benefiting from a drop, the multiple positions that a drop bar offers. Um, so, yeah, they are quite cheap, though. So if you have the bike already, you're sticking with that bike, you can get a set of those levers for probably £25 or less. If you get someone else to fit them, it's going to cost you a bit of labour. But they are a viable option, but not necessarily the kind of cure that you might be looking for. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is, you know, are you riding the right sort of bike? If you're really uncomfortable on drop bars, then it's obviously worth looking at a flat bar bike, particularly for commuting to work, because, you know, that's, it might not be a particularly long journey, sitting upright, brakes like mountain bikes, it, you know, that, that, that might be, that's obviously another option. But if you're getting a free bike, then I suppose you want to make the most of that first. Yeah, definitely. It's quite a difficult time right now to buy a second-hand bike as well. Or a new <laughs> bike. It's quite uh, high demand. Yeah, yeah. So, so make sure you lock that bike as well when you're commuting to work. There has, there has been an increase in bike theft uh, since we've eased lockdown here in the UK, apparently. About 50%, 50% up on last year. Mm. Terrible times, terrible mm. times. Right, let's move on to another mountain bike question. Um, Rob, 
I, not me, but uh, our correspondent, has recently bought their first um, full suspension bike. Full, I said full, did you hear that? I get picked up on that a lot. Uh, it's a Canyon Spectral CF 9.0. They love it, but they do feel as though they might need some help setting up the rear shock. At the minute, the back end of the bike feels pretty soft and bobs a lot when pedaling, and the shock features a low compression dial. So is that something that would help with that, or is there more they need to be doing? Right. Well, um, I think with any of these things, it's best to almost get back to the basics, start from scratch. So um, first I would um, look at setting the sag again. So that person will need a shock pump in order to do that. And it just um, screws on onto the shock and it's dead easy to use, obviously, just like a regular pump, but very much smaller, high pressure. Um, and then using the O-ring that will sit on the shock shaft, they need to just push that right up to the top of the shock, so the end of the shaft, basically, where it enters the shock body. And um, once they've sat on the bike without their brakes on, they should be able to see where that O-ring then sits. Um, if it's a real struggle, you might need someone else to maybe hold the handlebars just to help you balance or just do what I do and lean up against the van or a wall. Um, when you're setting it and um i think it's uh the there's a rock shock it's a rock shock super deluxe on that bike so the shaft itself actually has markings which will give you an indication so you don't need to get your tape measure out to work out exactly how much sag you've got so you're looking for around about 30 percent sag so once you've done that and you're happy with um the pressure you've you've set in the shock it's then a case of looking at um the various external adjustments that you've got with that um i mean is it it can get quite complicated doing this so it's worth if you've got a friend who maybe has a better idea maybe asking them or pop into your local bike shop because they will be able to um give you sort of some hands-on guidance but in this instance we're going to just go from scratch and just say that that isn't the case and you just need to get out and ride one section of trail essentially over and over again and what i would do is start by winding that low speed compression dial all the way till it's closed so that's in the positive direction so clockwise and then each and every run because it's going to feel when that's when that's wound in it's going to feel quite harsh because what that what that adjustment does is essentially calms down um, all the low it's low shaft speed um, movements. So inputs like when you're pedaling, so it bobs, um, when you're loading the bike through a turn or when you're going up the um, takeoff of a jump, all those sort of slower speed um, shaft movements is what that's essentially controlling. So start with it fully wound in and back it off a click at a time. But like I said, you just need to ride one section of trail. It doesn't need to be too long. But just, um, I would say, a bit with a few turns, um, maybe a little jump, and then a little climb back up, because then you'll get an idea of how smoothly it's pedaling. And each and every lap, you just want to make just one single adjustment. So just focus on that low-speed compression for now, and just slowly start backing it off until it starts to feel a little more forgiving, but without it bobbing too much. 
But this is where it all gets a bit complicated because obviously if you've made changes to your shock pressure, you've made changes to your low speed compression adjustment, you're going to need to consider making adjustments to your rebound as well. And for rebound, what I'd say generally, a rule of thumb, you just want it to be as controlled as possible. So um, generally it's going to feel like it might be quite fast. Um, and as long as it doesn't feel like it's bucking you, it, the idea is that you want your, your shock to get that wheel tracking the ground as well as it can. So if you add too much rebound damping, it will just start to pack down. It won't be able to recover between the bumps. Uh, and too little damping, it's going to feel out of control, kind of like a pogo stick just bouncing you around. So again, it's just about focusing on one adjustment at a time and just riding that same piece of trail and slowly and methodically just making those changes to the rebound once you set everything else up. It's it's quite a long-winded process, process I'm afraid. Matthew? I was just going to say um, there's an excellent video by our colleague Seb Stott on the Bike Radar YouTube channel that gives you a kind of real simple primer to suspension setup and as somebody who's not particularly good at this stuff i found it very useful well there you go i should have just said that at the start just said, just go to, go <laughs> to <YouTube>. watch video. <laughs> cheers rob i mean that that does sound um, that sounds like quite a uh, an involved process i thought um fixing hydraulic um hybrid brakes disc brakes sounded complicated i think i'd just stick to a hardtail be a lot easier wouldn't it yeah, well i think i think it sounds complicated but once you actually start experimenting and doing it, mm. it's all about what you feel coming back from the bike. Yeah. And you start to then, and if you're only making, you know, it's, it's like anything scientific almost where you're just making, you're trying to control the variables as much as you can. So making one change at a time, hopefully then you can isolate it and, and feel the difference. If you can't, if you do too many things at once, it's really hard to pin down what it is mm. that's making that bike feel different. But hopefully, once they get sort of at least going and they don't feel too daunted by the process, you can actually start to feel it pretty quickly. And hopefully, mm. you know, you should have a, a, a positive outcome. Eventually, you will be at one with the machine. There you go. That's yeah, what we're exactly. after. That's what we're after. Talking <laughs> of being at one with the machine in a terrible segue. Uh, the next question is for you, Matthew. It's from someone who has a gravel bike. It's a specialised uh, Diverge. They've got WTB Radler tyres fitted. They want to start putting in more road miles, but don't want to quite, you know, quite understandably keep swapping between tyres, and they also can't afford a second set of wheels. So is there a set of perfect do-it-all tyres that won't hold them back on the road but still handle the occasional blast um, you know, down a bridleway. Tyre choice is always a compromise to an extent. That's a given because anything that's good in on like loose stuff, whether that's gravel, dirt, whatever, or in mud, is always going to be less good on smooth tarmac. Um, for a gravel bike, I would tend to err for that kind of usage to a tyre that's closer to a slick. Um, and I don't know what width this person is running, but say they're running 40 or 45 mil tyres at the moment, they might go down to a 35 for something that feels a little bit faster. There are quite a few gravel tyres that have a very low profile, like or even a near slick centre tread, but with a little bit more on the 
shoulders. For example, if you like WTB, there's the Byway. Uh, Schwalbe does the G1 in various versions. I quite like the G1 Byte. Or there's the uh, Pirelli Cinturato Gravel H. Um, and those tyres will roll pretty well on tarmac. And they still have a little bit of tread that will help you off-road. A huge amount depends on the conditions. You can ride like gentle gravel on road tyres. I ride gravel on 28mm road tyres fairly regularly. And that's fine when it's dry. But then if you try and do that when it's muddy and wet, you're really going to struggle because anything slick is just not going to have any grip or traction in mud. Weaves. Um, I was just going to ask, from memory, the Diverge doesn't have the most clearance, does it? Maybe the new one's got more. Is that right? But I, I think the older bike doesn't have lots of tyre clearance. I'm not sure what the max width is on it. It, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, it'll take at least a 45 the Diverge in a 700c size wheel. It's probably worth checking, um, right? Yeah, but um, for this question, I can't imagine anyone's going to go wider. They want to go narrower than what they've already got, I would have thought. Because, well, there is a school of thought with gravel tyres, particularly people running 650b wheels, where they run like a big balloon slick, which a lot of people really like because you get a really cushiony ride. But then... I think if you're going on and off-road, a big balloon stick actually maybe doesn't make that much sense because they do feel slower on the road, but they're still rubbish if you're in anything loose because they just don't have that bite. Surely they must be terrible in the UK anyway because it's always wet. Well, yeah, there is that. I think a big problem with gravel is it means different things to so many different mm. people. UK mm. gravel bears very little resemblance to the kind of platonic ideal of gravel that is the US thing with like these great expanses of dirt road. We don't really have that here. Most people it, are riding fire roads, bridleways in the UK, and those can be almost as smooth as tarmac, or they can be really, really rough and really not suitable for a gravel, gravel bike at all. It's mud, basically. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty much british gravel isn't it <laughs> so you know uh mountain bikes are available i guess but yeah you know um you there's always, as you said there's always going to be a compromise um you so there isn't the perfect tire that does everything is there basically you just no, have to no yeah. there just isn't i'm sure you'd say the same about mountain bike tires weaves it's always a trade-off yeah absolutely yeah it is just finding the least amount of compromise isn't it i think Back to mountain bikes, then, Rob. Thank you, thank you for that one, Matthew. Um, this uh, this co- this correspondent has uh, just fitted a cable-operated dropper post, and for some reason, it's rather droopy. Droopy is a good word, isn't it? Uh, they can manually cycle it up and down, but when it's fully extended, it seems to slowly sag without them even pushing the remote lever. What's going wrong there? I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens to me if I ever adjust a saddle on a road bike. I've got this uh, automatic dropper post that sinks <laughs> down on me because I never tighten it up properly. Um, I would say it's more than likely that there's too much cable tension. So if it has, if this dropper has um, a barrel adjuster at the remote, it's worth... Uh, backing that off so reducing the amount of tension on the cable just to see whether that will allow it to hold itself in place because with too much tension you, you know the the actuation system is sort of it's neither open nor closed it's sort of somewhere in the middle so while it will still you know return to full extension and then it starts to sag so it's kind of neither here nor there so what i would say is if they can um 
decrease the cable tension using the barrel adjuster on the remote, do that. Otherwise, it might just be a case of um, unclamping the cable and starting again. And it depends on the brand, but some are easy to do because the cable anchors at the remote. So it's nice and easy just to undo the little pinch bolt on the remote lever and then tension the cable that way. Others will um, fasten the cable down at the base of the dropper post, which does make life a little fiddlier because you have to remove the post, make those changes, reinsert the post and start again. But yeah, it sounds like it's it's just cable tension, I guess. Um, but if if that doesn't work and you can't can't get that sorted, take it to your bike shop, take it to your local bike shop. It could be you have a faulty cartridge in the post, but it sounds like it does sound like cable tension. Cable tension, and we had droopy and fiddlier in there. I like those fiddlier. two good words. Two good <laughs> words, Matthew. You. Uh... Uh, I was just going to ask if there's any sort of general best practice you'd advise for looking after a dropper in terms of like cleaning and lubrication. Um, it's all dependent upon the brand. Generally, some are more than some brands. You know, are, are keen for you to open them up and essentially service them yourself. Some are very much almost um, almost like some suspension brands. They don't want you getting your hands inside the cartridge. It needs to be. Uh, you know, professional service job. Um, but in terms of sort of everyday use, it's a little bit like suspension forks. It's checking that wiper seal on the top, keeping that clean, um, keeping an eye on stuff like um, movement on the post, you know, if it's sort of wobbling to and fro. A lot of them have a little bit of play in there anyway. But if it seems to have got excessive, um, then obviously you need to do something about it rather than just keep riding it because you could be doing more damage to it. And then for the for the cable operated ones, it's yes, yeah, you know, keeping tabs on the wear and tear of that cable that's used. So just like you would with your gear cables, you know, after a hard winter of use, generally you wanna you wanna change them just to keep everything running smoothly. Same with the outer that you're using. Um, and if it's hydraulic, so if it's like a RockShox one, then, um, yeah, purge the system, bleed it through. It's easier than brakes, Rob, so you could do it. I could do it. <laughs> I, I like the sound of it. I'll give it a go, even though I haven't got a dropper post. But there we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving on. Next up, someone who has come into some money. So it's not me. Uh, and they will finally want to take the plunge on building a dream road bike uh, they are uh, long-time shimano users but are tempted by sram's uh, red etap access uh, electronic group set they basically want an electronic group set which brand should they go for matthew it's such an easy question sram or shimano or let's not for forget uh, campagnolo as well um, but what are the pros and cons of, of each you know i guess Sh sram and shimano are the two main players in this this field a huge amount of this is obviously personal taste i think the first question i'd ask is if you're you know more or less you like shimano stuff but how do you feel about etap's overall ergonomics and the way it shifts because it is different um etap uses two shifter buttons one on each there's one on each lever you shift your left hand makes your gears easier your right hand makes your gears harder you press both levers and it shifts the front derailleur which is very different, whereas DI2 has two buttons on each lever, which essentially mimic the function of a mechanical shifter. 
So some people don't like the ETAP approach. I think it's very clever and quite intuitive. But again, that's personal taste. Um, in terms of riding big miles regularly, there's there's no difference. They There are some practical implications. ETAP derailers have separate batteries, which you need to charge reasonably often. It depends how much you ride, but typically it would be every, say, like three or four weeks or something. Um, whereas the DI2 system all runs off a single central, quite large capacity battery, which lasts for months. The only problem with the Shimano system there is that it lasts so long that you forget to charge it. Um, but again, that's it has no real bearing on your riding. It doesn't actually matter. Uh, obviously, the fact that the SRAM system is wireless is really, really cool. But once it's installed and working, it doesn't actually make any difference to your riding experience. If you're building a bike, ETAP is so much easier because you don't have to route cables through the frame. But once it's done, that's kind of a moot point. Um, Weaves, what would you like to ask? Well, I was just going to ask about... Um, so with DI2, do you then have to... Does it Would it, Im, would it impact your choice of frame? Because you have, you have to have somewhere to put the battery, right? Well, really most <laughs> DI2 equipped bikes now use a seat post battery, so it's inside the seat post. Um, there's pretty well no high-end or even mid-range carbon frames these days that don't have some sort of provision for DI2, and a lot of them will have a different set of blanking plates for cable ports so that you can neatly run the DI2 cables. Um, so... I'm assuming that this person will probably have that side of it covered most likely. But yeah, it's definitely a consideration because with the wireless group set, you can bolt it to literally anything because there are no wires. You still have to route the hydraulic hoses, or assuming you're going disc or the uh, brake cables if you're not. But yeah, um, another key difference is to do with gearing. SRAM took quite a new approach when they launched the Axis group set. So the crank and cassette options look quite different on paper i think it's quite interesting and novel what they've done and it gives you some really useful ranges some people don't like the idea of having a 10 tooth cog on a road bike because in theory it might be less efficient but in the real world are you going to notice that maybe not um durace is slightly lighter uh which again matters to some people don't quote me exactly, but I think it's in the region of around 150, 200 grams for a complete group set, but it will depend a lot on what setup you've got. Um, having used both group sets quite a bit, I think that Durace DI2 is more tolerant of bad behaviour. So if you're just riding normally and shifting, both group sets will perform very well. But if you do terrible stuff like dumping a bunch of gears at a standstill and then trying to pedal the SRAM group set will protest more in that scenario. Uh, final consideration is that Duros has been around for a few years and it's more than likely going to be updated in the next year or so. So if you're the sort of person that gets very sad when your products are no longer the current one, you should get the SRAM group set because it's much less likely to be updated. Um, my personal preference, I'd probably go Duros even so, but both excellent group sets. Fantastic answer. Um, so next question, um, and probably I think our last question. I think we've answered quite a few, haven't we today? So I think we've, you know, we let's go for one last question for 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 mountain biking. So Rob, uh, 
the, the next person that's been in touch has, um, they've had their tyres set up tubeless for around six months. But they've noticed um, recently that they had to top them up with air before heading for a ride. Uh, but for some reason, they couldn't actually get any air into the tyre. What, what happened there? Any ideas? Uh, okay, well, um, it's a bit of a fiddly one. All you need to do is basically whip your tyres off, get the valves out, and you need to take the core of the valve apart because it sounds like the fluid has um, coagulated, so it's it's probably just bunging up the valve hole. Um, so you, you need to, yeah, get stuck in. Get I use I actually use it's a it's a cut down spoke which I've sharpened. So once I've taken the valve apart, I just uh, stick a stick the spoke in. Um, you could do it with the valves in situ with your tyre still on. But the problem is all you're doing then is just pushing whatever's bunging in back into the tyre, which might actually make its way back into the valve later down the line. And by the sounds of it, if it's clogging in your valve, the sealant might not be doing its job in the tyre. So it's probably worth taking the tyres off, checking that sealant. Um, maybe if there's you know any, any sealant left, just ditching it somewhere safely and then giving your tire a quick clean and then topping it up with some fresh sealant. It should, it should so fix it. Is that a reasonably common problem then? That's not unusual. Yeah. No, it happens all the time. And it's, it's I think, uh, probably for us more than anyone because we'll have, I don't know, however many bikes while we're testing. And it might be that you don't actually go back to ride your own bike for a while, maybe a few months. And, you know, at that point, the tires do need topping up and it frustratingly yeah, happens to me all the time. Mm. And it is, it is one of those things um, that, yeah, it's, it is a pretty quick fix really. But you, you know, like with any of these things, like all these, all these things are a really positive step in terms of your ride experience and the technology, but it is another thing that you need to stay on top of in terms of maintenance. Matthew. Um, I was wondering Obviously, like tubeless is now becoming quite a big thing in road, and but a lot of people don't really have a sense of like the ongoing maintenance. I was wondering if you from mountain bikes had a a realistic sense of how often you're topping up sealant, and also are you clearing out the old stuff when you do that? Are you scraping out the inside of the tire, or do you just chuck some more in? I think a lot of it depends on uh, it depends on maybe the sealant and how it looks once you open your tire up if it's started to you know cling together and bobble up and it's not really mobile inside of the tire which is what it needs to be in order to obviously work its way around and, and fill those holes then yeah you just scrape whatever it is out and, and get rid of it in terms of um I, I guess time i don't know it's hard to say i'd say looking maybe every few months just just having a you know a sort of give it a once over quick health check just every few months is probably the the best thing to do um you yeah. could probably leave it a little bit longer but if you're doing longer rides and you are you know reliant on the fact that you've got fluid sloshing around in your tires and you want it to do the job that it's there for then yeah it is something you need to keep an eye on same with your tires in fact though just a quick sort of spin and looking for any tears or any um tire treads that look like they're peeling off where it's obviously going to be a weak a weakness 
and, and potentially somewhere that you could get a puncher from. Yeah, just same as that, really, just keeping an eye on things as you go. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much, Rob. No and thank you very much, Matthew. I think there were plenty of uh, plenty of questions there and plenty of excellent answers. So hopefully, even if, even if those you know you the, the answers weren't specific to you, you got something from them. Um, if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to us on, and look out on um, Bike Radar social media channels um, because we regularly ask you to submit your questions so if you have any uh, questions for the road team and the mountain bike team look out on social media and ask away and uh, thank you for listening goodbye thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com. radar.com